Welcome to the MS Dev Show, episode number 168. This week we talk with Jess Borland about SQL Server 2017. We talk about the iPhone X Pensive. And stop listening to this episode and listen to this episode about recursion. Raygun gives you complete visibility on errors, crashes, and performance problems affecting your end users. Replicate issues in seconds rather than digging through log files or having to rely on users to report errors or crashes. Raygun gives you a window into how users are really experiencing your software applications. Check it out today at raygun.com. This episode of the MS Dev Show is brought to you by Aspose, the market leader of .NET and Java APIs for file business formats. Natively work with DocX, XSLX, PPT, PDF, MSG, MPP, image formats, and many more. This week, I am super excited to have Jess Borland. She's a premier field engineer specializing in SQL Server and Azure, and she has awesome tattoos. Welcome, Jess. Good afternoon, Jason. Good afternoon, Carl. <laughs> How's it going? So you have been on the show before. Um, I, I looked though; it was 53 years ago, if you can believe it. Um, I would say probably <laughs> like 50 because I'm not 53 yet. Oh, but okay, okay. yes, I was here eons ago. <laughs> yeah, you. Uh, we actually use your name in one of our emails because um, nice. we have we mentioned some of the guests that we've had on the show for when okay. we request guests, and you are listed in there. So awesome. I have sent. I don't know. What is that? Probably 130 emails with your name in it. (laughs) (laughs) This is like when I meet people, they're like, I think I've heard the name before. Typically, it's a joke about Borland, but... You know, no. <laughs> especially with this, especially with this crowd, right? Nope, has nothing <laughs> nothing to do with that. It's all the yeah. Dev Show. Awesome. Okay, so Carl, what do we got for the comment of the week? Uh, the comment of the week we pulled off of our Slack channel. So yes, go to uh, msdevshow.slack.com to send yourself an invite to slack.msdevshow.com. Isn't it the other way? Yes. Slack. Of, I missed yeah, just do one of those. <laughs> just just randomly, right. randomly type those two things until something comes up that looks like a Slack invite. Yeah. Thing. So I've pretty much been traveling for the last two weeks. So <laughs> cut me I some Slack. Oh. All right. Oh. But anyways, anyways, uh, uh, Bob Tipton, uh, 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 had a question about interviews and we really like these interview, uh, style, uh, thought exercises. So he said, I've often thought it would be smart to deliberately whiff a basic question in an interview to see how the interviewer reacts. Uh, Do they try to be helpful? Do they make you feel bad about it? If you're worried about looking bad, you can demonstrate later that you understood the answer and explain that you were trying to gauge their company culture. So I thought this would be kind of an interesting one just to kind of throw out there. You know, you know, what are your thoughts on somebody just like kind of on purpose throwing a question in an interview to, to gauge like he said, you know, how people on the team would respond. Yeah, that, that seems, it seems risky to me, <laughs> you know, like uh, I, I do, I, I feel like there, there, I had this sort of epiphany like years ago where, you know, I would, I would always be afraid to ask stupid questions and then I would proceed to listen to everybody else ask stupid questions. And then I just sort of realized like, Hey, stupid questions are okay. And probably other people have the same stupid question. <laughs> um, so I don't know if I'd. I, I would do what he says. Maybe like, I, I don't know. I honestly, I'm kind of neutral on the whole thing, but I think it's okay to ask stupid questions. And I, I think that, um, the right stupid questions can actually make you sound really smart. You know, it's like, if you were to ask, 
I, I but don't that's know. the opposite this, of what he's saying. Yeah. So if somebody were to like ask you like what's what's the opening tag on an uh, HTML5 document, and then you're like, I don't know. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah, you know, seems, like that so- seems that seems really bad. Like if I if I was interviewing somebody and they they were like that would stand out of my head. Like it would be like tick. Like that wouldn't it wouldn't ruin the interview, but that would stand out. I was thinking more, and maybe this is like a terrible example. If you if you if you were talking to the interviewer and you'd be like you know, what business do you think you're really in? You know, like where it's, it's sort of like this question that seems like super basic, you know, maybe at the company is finance, for example, you know, so you're talking to a bank and it's like, what is your business? Like, what do you really do? You know? And, and, and it's like so stupid of a question that it sounds really smart (laughs) because they're like, oh, well, we're in bank. Wait a second. Actually, when it comes down to it, we're in the business of, I don't know, blowing people's minds somehow. (laughs) I don't know. I don't know if that makes sense or not. You guys are really quiet, so maybe not. What do you think, Jess? <laughs> Overall about the question, I think that you're in an interview to put your best foot forward, not yeah. be, you are not there to trip somebody up. You are not there to try to stump anyone. Like, I would never do that. I would just mm-hmm. put my best foot forward. I think his point is you're there not only to put your best foot forward, but you're there to see what the company's best foot is as well. And, yeah. you know, here's another tactic to potentially unveil, you know, what their culture is. You know, how, how yeah. do they treat, you know, it's like that the adage, like, uh, you see how somebody treats a secretary or a waitress to understand how they truly uh, act around people. Right. Yeah. I've heard the waiter waitress thing before where, you know, they, they, I don't know, we'll have to find the, like the official story. I don't know what the origin of that is, but it was some manager, you know, they, they take somebody to lunch and then they, they have the restaurant intentionally screw up their order, uh, to see what the reaction is by the other person. So it's, you know, this is, this is almost like the interviewee version of that. Yeah. Yeah. So I don't know. I can kind of understand the idea behind it, you know, where you, you are, you know, because if, if the interviewer yells at me like, what are you, some kind of moron? You know, like that <laughs> that obviously tells you you don't you don't want to work there. But, but it's if a they fine get, like, line to walk as well with them wondering, yeah. does this person really know what they're here for? Like, do we yeah. want this person <laughs> on our team? Yeah, super fine line to walk. Yeah, yeah because the why. person the person might not react, the interviewer might not react like you said, Jason, but he might write that down. He's like, yep. the interviewee is a moron, and that's in his notes. <laughs> and yeah. So the interview was going great until this person said, insert this question here. And then I thought, what would we be getting into? Yeah, because I ran into a situation like that recently where it was somebody was missing like a, 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 a super I don't even want to say it, but it was like a, a super basic thing that's sort of fundamental to like computers and the Internet in general. And I was like, that's not good. You know, so that, that just kind of made me question everything, you know, because you have to have that foundation. Um, and I don't want to turn this into like a, a college discussion where like four year university university versus like tech school. But it's one of those things where, you know, like while I was in, in college, it was like, why are we learning all this garbage? Like, this is just ridiculous. And and now I'm just like, oh, OK, that was just like that was just the that was the foundation. That's all it was. It wasn't actually anything useful for, you know, quote unquote useful that I thought I would use. Uh, but it was kind of that foundational stuff. So I don't know. Um, use at your own risk, 
Um, I thought I thought it was a unique unique idea, so I, I'm glad that we picked it, and I think it makes for a cool discussion point. And maybe some people write in and comment on on a good way, good tactics to use in an interview to make yourself uh, sound really good and make it so that the uh, potential employer, like you, can get an actual feel for their culture. And I think we've mentioned in the past too, like um, this whole concept of of just saying, "Hey, can I hang out with your team for a day?" and uh and see see what, how the culture is and and we actually had um um you know somebody do that on on our team they said that and I was like yeah that sounds like a great idea and uh that ended up selling it for them and then they were pretty sure cuz you know anytime you switch jobs there's always like all this mystery and you know you, you're super stressed out cuz you're like is this is this going to be is this going to be for me and you just don't know so anything you can do to figure out that culture i think is really important well, anyway you want to wrap it up carl yeah, so if you want to get mentioned on the show like Bob, uh, send us an email to feedback at msdevshow.com. Uh, come on on face, uh, on Facebook, YouTube, or Stitcher, uh, and also our Slack channel. We really like the live reviews. Yep. Okay, so let's get into the news, and let's we can go through these pretty quickly. First one here is October 10th, Windows Developer Day. What does that mean? Yeah, so uh, last February, the Windows team put on this Developer Day. It's a virtual event, but they also have uh, some live viewing parties, and uh, they're throughout the world. So if you go check out the link in our show notes, uh, on that blog post, they have a list, I think, two do- two dozen different places worldwide. And I am going to try my hardest to be at the one in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Mm. Uh, because that sounds like an awesome, uh, time. So really what they try to do is get out the, what's the latest and greatest. It's happening right after the fall creator update. And, uh, last time they showed you, uh, you know, what is available for developers that just came out and a sneak peek on things that are, uh, in development yet too. Okay. Sounds cool. Um, any other comments? Move on. Okay. Nope. Perfect. Microsoft linker tool shrinks.net applications. Oh no, I would, I like big applications. Oh, this is the actual size. Oh, okay. Yeah. So what's really cool about this is uh, this tool, uh, the linker, analyzes your code, see which underlying parts of the .NET framework aren't needed. And essentially, if you have a kind of application that's self-hosted or bringing the .NET framework with it, it just won't include any of those when it builds it. So you'll have the smallest possible application. And I, one of the things I thought was really interesting about this, this actually didn't come from the .NET team directly. It came from uh, the Xamarin acquisition that they had. They had something like this for uh, iOS and Android, and they made this so it works with all of .NET standard now. So that's pretty cool that we can all uh, benefit on uh, Xamarin's uh, technology now. Absolutely. Uh, and Dykstra was right. Recursion should not be difficult. Yeah. So I don't know about you, Jason, but when I went through, uh, uh, university and school and we got to the part on recursion, like there was like a big pause and like the instructor is like, now everybody has problems with recursion kind of setting the stage and you always hear from everybody else like, Oh, recursion is so tough. I didn't actually kind of like when they got to it, you're like, I was like all nervous about it. And I'm like, really? That's all it is. Yeah, and I, I, I personally didn't think recursion was too bad. I mean, like my first time, I probably screwed it up and had some infinite loops that crashed my machine or something. But um, you know, I got I got the concepts really quickly. And um, according to Dijkstra, who has been uh, in computer science for ages, he did a lot with compilers and a, a lot of the early work in the field. Said that uh, recursion really shouldn't be that difficult of a concept to understand. Mm-hmm. And this article just kind of really goes very simple ways to kind of understand what recursion is and uh, show that it's it's really a basic concept. Yeah. So um, 
if you go out to google.com, you can't use Bing for this. Uh, search for recursion. Have you done this? Yes. <laughs> Carl's like, I was trying to keep this serious. So if you go out, if you go out there and you Google uh, recursion, it says, did you mean recursion, <laughs> which you can click through. And uh, yeah, I haven't found the end yet, but I'm close. Um, so yeah. It's at the I, end I of the internet, Jason. Yeah. No, I think, uh, yeah, recursion itself i don't think is difficult i think i think some of the recursive algorithms themselves can get complicated like i just used recursion just the other day and i thought it was the simplest thing in the world i mean i was uh um you know i was basically polling a site to 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 see if some processing was done and i just kept calling my i i just kept calling myself and i said uh Hey, can you check on this and then wait? And then you know, it just kept calling itself and then it would actually go out to, to somewhere else. Um, I think that's technically recursion. I mean, as long as you're calling yourself, yeah. right. But in that case, like it was super easy to understand. Um, and I don't think anybody would have an issue understanding that. And, and in fact, some languages don't even have any loop constructs. Uh, they assume that you will use uh, recursion when you do. Right. Yeah. Cool. Uh, and then one last thing we're going to talk about, and we're going to keep this short. Normally, we would probably talk about this longer, but the iPhone 8 and iPhone X, um, and probably like everybody's probably sick of hearing about it for you know by now because uh, there were the announcements. Uh, the iPhone 8 is like one percent better than the seven, apparently. Uh, <laughs> it's got it's got uh, wireless charging if that's your thing. Um, you know, in a couple years that'll be my thing. Uh, you know, as as I get the hardware and as I get the the charging plate. Um, they're faster, better, stronger, blah, blah, blah. Um, the X is, uh, a couple hundred dollars more. And, um, I guess the only thing I want to talk about here was why to me personally, it was a disappointment. And, and I'm the person like before it came out, I said, I'm going to buy it. Like I was, I just thought I like had, I had everything ready. I'm like, I'm going to just buy the X. That's, that's what I'm going to do. Um, and then they announced it and I was still a little bit excited about it, but, um, Really, it's the same size screen that I have in my Plus, and of course, you know, that's not technically exactly the same, but for all intents and purposes, same size screen, except that it costs a lot more money. The phone's a little bit smaller, which just means I have to buy new everything, new holders and everything, which just, of course, means more money. So basically, I'd be spending a whole bu- whole bunch of money to make my phone slightly smaller. So I'm not excited about this. Yeah, I was uh, disappointed too. I was hoping for something that was entirely uh, a brand new design, innovative. I mean, this was the 10th year. I mean, people last year were already saying, wait till next year when it's the 10 year anniversary. They're going to do such amazing things. And then nothing happened. Yeah. Um, Essentially. Uh, Like you said, it it was kind of incremental for me. um, I'm going with the eight because one, I don't want to spend the extra $200 and I have one, an an older one and I need to pass down my phone to my children. Mm -hmm. So if it (laughs) weren't for that economics, so if it weren't for that, I might just keep, I might just kept on to the current one that I have because it's good enough. But I will say I am very excited to use all of my old windows phone wireless charging plates that I hung on to. So (laughs) <laughs> windows phone for the win <laughs> paying off a good investment so um <laughs> oh. one thing i wanted to mention i i wanted one so one of the reasons why you know so i have a seven so you know you're saying like oh wh- you know why do you have so much money that you were going to get the x right away so i'll tell you the number one reason 
Um, and there's a number two, but the number one reason I think it was one of the biggest, I, I had some Bluetooth troubles and I'm not going to bore everybody with that again. And I ended up, I went from 128 gig phone down to a 32 gig phone. So my iPhone seven is 32. I said, that's not a big deal. I then switched to start doing 4k video. 32 gigs became a big problem. Uh, so basically like I was on a trip recently every day, I should say every night, I would just leave my phone luckily on uh, Dropbox for the file upload. You, it will actually keep the screen on and every night over LTE. I would upload eight gigabytes worth of video and photos. And then in the morning I would delete all those photos, which actually of course does not delete them. You have to go into your recently deleted, select everything and tell it to actually delete those things to reclaim that space. And I would do that every single day uh, because I only had eight gigs free. So um, why is that not an issue anymore? So the upgrade to iOS 11, I don't know how many people have noticed. It actually takes up far less space. Um, immediately after the upgrade, I reclaimed four gigabytes. So I, I was I went from eight to 12 gigabytes free. Um, and they have this new feature where the applications that you don't use will actually um, become uninstalled, but it keeps all the app data. And you can go in and you can also force this. So I went in and I took some of the big apps that I uh, that I generally don't use, but I don't want it to go in the app store and search for them. Um, I, I basically told it to get rid of those. So they're still, um, you know, you can still see them on the phone, but if you click on, they have a little cloud icon. And if you actually tap on them, it will download it and then run it. But anyway, because of the free space that was reclaimed and uh, doing that with all the apps and everything, um, I'm basically up to 16 gigs free. I have actually doubled my available capacity. So I don't know, emergency averted until until I go on like a five day <laughs> trip. Uh, but for the time being, I'm going to try to suffer through it until the next generation. Well, I had been holding <laughs> off on updating to iOS 11 because I've been traveling much like Carl has. But now yeah. you may have talked me into doing that sooner rather than later. Yeah, no, I, there's there's really no issue not to. The, the issues are pretty minor with it. Uh, so what what iPhone do you have? I have an iPhone 6S. I okay. do, I do so not want a phone that is 90% of the size of my iPad mini or other tablet. <laughs> <That's, laughs> it's a portability factor. So yeah, I'm, okay. I mean, mine's getting a little bit old. It's a little bit slow, but I don't know. There's no compelling reason for me either to upgrade to the X. It's just not that amazing. No, it's not. But it's then not. again, I, a lot of I don't money. know what feature would make it like uh, have to have, right? I'm just... It's one of those things where we kind of count on Apple or other companies to bring us that thing we didn't know we needed, right? right. And the, like the earbuds, the ear things. AirPods, that yeah. Like, yeah, that's not it. Like, I'm, I'm fine without it. So I disagree, and I think Carl disagrees, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> I don't have them either, so maybe that's why. Because I, I, I said the same thing. You can go back and listen to the show where I said that they were stupid, and I, I now have them, and they're not stupid. <laughs> <laughs> and there's Carl's. Noted. I don't have mine. Mine are sitting over. Oh, no, maybe. Oh, yeah, I think they're <laughs> sitting over there. But yeah, I just haven't seen a compelling, you know, you need to have this right in the last couple iterations of it. Yeah. I will say anybody who has a six, that's slow, that phone is so slow compared to a seven. I think the seven was, it's literally like 10 X faster and the eight is probably like 20 X faster. So maybe I'll um, upgrade to an eight eventually, but yeah. Yeah. But since you have a uh, a 6S, you're fine. I went from a 6 to a 7. And like Waze went from like, it was like 6 or 7 seconds to open Ooh. Waze down to 1. Ooh. That's how big of a difference it was. Yeah. Big factor. Yeah. But anyway, okay. So we've talked about Apple stuff enough. Actually, was there any other announcement? I don't think. Oh, the watch. Yeah. I wanted one so with you saw LTE. the reviews? I don't want to. Sp- 
I don't want to spend $400 and $10 a month. And people say it lasts only half a day. And actually, the the maybe I could live with all that. The biggest showstopper is that apps can't even use the cellular connection. Like, what is the point? So you have like, uh, you know, Overcast, which I use for podcasts. And he's just like, yeah, you just, I, I basically can't make this thing use LTE. It's pretty, it's just Apple music. What, what, what are you doing over there? Apple? Come on. Like I thought you were like an app platform where people could build apps they're, to do they're money things, printing company, but not in this case. Yeah. Yeah. It's just ridiculous. I don't know. Come on, get it together. <laughs> um, actually on, on Twitter, uh, Oh, doctor yep. is, is it? Yeah. Yeah. That's who it was. Right. Uh, or no, it was, uh, yeah. Oh, doctor. He was on there and he went on this rant, uh, for like five minutes. You got to check that out. Like it was just awesome. He just was like yelling at Apple for five minutes and it was pretty epic. Uh, okay. So let's, let's, let's talk about the good stuff. Let's talk about the stuff that we know. Um, <laughs> let, let's, let's get to dev talk here. So let's, let's talk to Jess about SQL server, which apparently you've used once or twice. Uh, I've used it a couple times over the last couple years, perhaps. No, you are. Yeah, no, you do tons of SQL work. You're doing awesome stuff over there. Yeah. And it's exciting now to be part of Microsoft and, you know, know a little bit more about what's coming down the pipeline, get a little bit, you know, more closely integrated with some of the new stuff too. Yeah. So let's start with like the soup. (laughs) Okay. Uh, We can pretend like I'm asking a really stupid question. Um, So the versions... Like we, we went a couple of years without a version, right? And then there was 2016. I'm hopefully yes. I'm not screwing it. Okay. And now they have 2017. We do. It's coming out soon where you've had uh, yeah. two release candidates, I think. And okay. there have been some updates there. The big push with getting a release this year for 2017 is to get out SQL Server running on Linux. That's really the ah. biggest. Oh, that makes sense. There. That makes sense. Yeah. Okay. Uh, I was not- wondering why all of a sudden it was just like, oh, you get another version just for Linux. <laughs> you get a version of SQL Server, <laughs> yeah. and you get a version of SQL Server, and you get a version of SQL Server. Uh, you know, that's the the big time topic is running SQL Server on Linux operating systems, being able to have full feature compatibility, um, you know, more for the administrative side of things, being able to do things like enable high availability and disaster recovery, you know, using Linux clustering, et cetera. So that's a, that's a big deal, but there are still other new features being put in and features that have come down from Azure SQL database, yep. you know, Microsoft's the cloud first, but not cloud only. So we have some, some stuff coming in that's really, really good for developers. So before, Aspose offers a powerful set of file management APIs with which developers can create applications, which can create, open, edit, and save the majority of popular business file formats. Their product range supports a multitude of file formats, including Word documents, Excel spreadsheets, PowerPoint presentations, PDF documents, OneNote, Outlook, Project, Visio files, popular image formats, and many others. Aspose produces APIs for .NET, Java, and the cloud, which can be utilized in almost any modern language available today. Visit Aspose.com for a free 30-day no-limitations trial, and if you get stuck... Message the friendly support team for help. All technical support is offered free of charge. And remember, if you are a lucky winner, you will receive a free developer small business license for Aspose.net, a powerful toolkit for working with Word documents in your applications. Is there anything okay. missing in the Linux version of SQL that is available in all of the other traditional versions? 
So are we missing anything in, in, by looking at Linux? Like, are there any features that exist in the Windows yeah. platform that don't yeah. exist in the SQL platform? Yeah, like platform? Uh, we couldn't get reporting services in there or, you know, something along those lines. We forgot how to do indexes. I don't well, know. And the, <laughs> well, like the GUI is missing, right? There are a few things that are unsupported, yes. And it is documented. So if you go out to okay. the docs.microsoft.com, it's, I would like to think that it's small things, but I know for someone it's going to be a big thing. Uh, mm -hmm. The most important things that you're going to notice if you do any sort of replication of data, um, replication isn't supported. Uh, you're not... Another thing you may have to like change some code for might be anything that uses system extended stored procedures. For example, XP underscore command shell and that sort of thing, right? Those are mm. Windows specific processes. Well, that makes sense. Yeah. yeah. So that, I mean, that's a little thing. Um, one of the topics I kind of want to talk with you two about today is CLR because there are mm. some changes to CLR coming in SQL Server 2017. Uh, CLR... In SQL Server, running on Linux doesn't support external access or unsafe, so some different permission sets aren't allowed. Well, so so speaking of that, and it's, since you're like kind of in the real world, like doing real world things, like yes, um, I mean, are a, a lot of people are using CLR functionality? Yes, tons. Okay, it's out there. Okay. It's in vendor software. It's in encryption software. It's a lot of things that have been built over the past five or 10 years to support things that SQL Server either didn't do or didn't do well. Um, again, encryption of certain things. Uh, another example I've seen very recently was uh, CLR assemblies that would handle JSON in SQL Server because SQL Server had no support for that until SQL Server 2016. So right. yes, it's definitely in use by a lot of companies out there. Okay, cool. Yeah. Um, some other big things that aren't going to be out there, at least initially with the SQL Server and Linux, like you mentioned, Carl, reporting services, analysis services. And if you're using any of the newer, like um, our services, those aren't available. Again, there is some documentation out there. If you're really interested, go ahead and check it out. Okay, cool. Uh, should we move on to the next topic, which would be uh, automatic tuning? Yeah, What's the deal with that? Yeah. <laughs> so that means we don't have to write indexes anymore? Yes. You won't have to. Someday soon in the future. If you're using Azure SQL database right now, you can turn on automatic tuning. What this does, we have, you know, basically algorithms running in the background processes running in the background that are looking at workload patterns against indexes. And what they'll do is they will say, well, if you'd had this index added to your query, it would make it X percent better. And with automatic tuning turned on in, again, specific to Azure SQL database, it will actually add that index in if it crosses a certain percentage of threshold of being useful. On the flip side, if there are a bunch of indexes that exist in your database that aren't being used at all after a certain amount of time, it will drop them and make your database overall just leaner, right? Because the indexes that are there not being used are just taking up space. So that's one half of automatic tuning. For now, that part is going to stay in Azure SQL database. The other half of it though, automatic tuning plan correction is, I think, equally cool and is going to be in SQL Server 2017. 
So to fully explain plan correction, I'm going to go back a step to SQL Server 2016. Have you guys talked about the query store feature and how... Okay. Is, I think I think you... I remember Dangled last time you were on. Front of, yeah, the last time, last time you were on, you that was, a little you, bit. Yeah, you were like super excited about it. So I, that's that's what I remember. I was, and I still am. For people <laughs> that work with uh, SQL Server um, execution plans, which are mm-hmm. right these graphical plans that tell us how our queries are being run, and they're a really big tool for performance tuning. The problem we've always run up against with the execution plans and the plan cache is it's stored in memory. So if we have to restart our SQL server, right, we lose all of that data. Um, and it only captures the most recent plan for a query. So if, if things change, indexes change, we add a column to our table, we recompile something manually, we lose all of that history um, parameter sniffing where, you know, that query that ran great one day, and then we passed in a different value to our stored procedure and the performance tanked. Well, we only have the execution plan from the one that tanked, so we can't compare it to see why it's so much worse. The query store feature available in, again, Azure SQL database and in SQL Server 2016 solved that problem. We turn it on at a database level, and it keeps a history of the execution plans for our queries over time. So if we have something like, my query ran great yesterday, but today it stinks, we can go into the query store and say, okay, yeah, you say, show me all of the execution plans for this query over the last week. And it'll give Mm -hmm. you not only the execution plans, but all of the metrics about it, right? How many times each specific version of the plan was executed, um, CPU usage, reads, really helpful stuff. One of the cool things we can do with that query store, if we have a query that suffers a lot from um, varying degrees of performance, let's say, some days it's really- Unpredictable. Yes, unpredictable (laughs) performance. We find a plan that works fairly well. Mm -hmm. We can force that plan. We can pin that plan. We can tell SQL Server, your query optimizer is doing a reasonably good job. Your query optimizer did the best job with this particular version of the plan. Use this yep. one every time the query is executed. Mm-hmm. Awesome. That's very cool. But that still oh. requires... <laughs> I got your hopes up. <laughs> but that still requires that there is someone that is actively going into the database server, actively checking query store for regressed queries, actively looking at performance issues. Wouldn't it be great if... There was a feature in the database that looked at all of the execution plans for each that query. That would be great, but who could possibly do that? Who could? <laughs> well, the SQL Server team is implementing that feature. It's a feature called execution plan correction. So what will be happening in the background is it's going to take all of these query store metrics that are being stored in the database for executions of the query. And what it will do is for each version of the So you have a query and a query can have one or more plans. Every plan will have a score from zero to 100. Zero being less expensive or zero being better, 100 being worse. And it will score them. If you turn on plan correction, right? This is not something that's enabled by default. It's something you would have to turn on. As multiple plans are generated for a query, if it finds one that's better than the others, it will say, 
let's use this. Let's use this. Let's use this. This should theoretically enable your queries to be tuned automatically in the background using the best plan that there is for it. That's very cool. Sounds like science fiction, doesn't it? <laughs> well, it's one of, you know, it, as you were talking, I was thinking about this, like a lot of these features, they seem sort of obvious afterward. Like, well, yeah, why, like, why wouldn't you do that? <laughs> um, but I, I, I suspect when you're on the other side of it, like it's not as obvious when, when the feature doesn't exist yet, you know, and I'm, if kind I, of like if we you, were if talking me, about with the phones, right? Like I yeah. didn't know I needed this. Yeah. Kind exactly. of hoping to bring people in. If I had no idea I needed this. But now you see it and you're just like, oh, how could I live any other way? How could how could I live with these random bad but, but plans it, in there? This is kind of how I feel about query store in general. Like how when I look, I have to, or another one of my favorite features in SQL Server since 2012 is extended events. I'm like, how did we live before this? Yeah. It was the dark ages. Yeah. Yep. The, the question <laughs> I have, and this is not really for this, but like if you were to go in and implement this, well, first of all, you know, why would you have several if you already have one that you know is the best? How do you know that there's new ones that might be better? Because you've already applied what you thought is the yeah. best. But things are changing all the time because our data changes all the time. The parameters we pass in change all the time. Uh, the data skew changes all the time. Statistics change all the time. The database is so variable that those kinds of those kinds of choices can can change several times a day depending on what your transactional load is. Really, yeah, is, it does seem antiquated now. In the in the good old days, we would like set our indexes, and it was like Done. ship it, you know. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> and it, and it seems like so primitive but, now. Yeah, and now th there is still something to be said, right, for indexes because again, we have the the automatic index tuning isn't coming down to. SQL Server quite yet. That's still a, an Azure-only product. So someone is still going to have to think, like, we have to create indexes on this table. We should. We still have to create non-clustered indexes to support our queries. It's about picking the plans that use those automatically. Yeah, I was going to say, this seems like a, internally a really good machine learning problem. Because not only that, but yes. not only that, but when you get those new parameters in, that creates that feedback loop to further train that machine learning model to get smarter and smarter. And that's yep. and that's where it seems to make sense uh, to for it to be in the cloud for now. That way, they can really figure out mm -hmm. how that works. So when they push it to something on yep. premises, well, you're not going to be able to share that beyond your server or cluster. That seems pretty awesome. Yeah. So the next thing, it's going to be right. It's one of those things that's new. And I can see that people might be hesitant to turn it on because it could make things better. But what if it could make things worse? But I think over time, we're going to see a lot of value out of that, especially as we get to systems where we have, you know, far more databases, far more applications than we do people to support them on a one-to-one -one basis. Yeah. So the, ne the next thing on our list to talk about is column store indexes. And you said that there's uh, this is currently your favorite feature in SQL Server. So can you tell us what they are yeah, and why so they're your favorite? Speaking of indexes, the so column store, <laughs> column store indexes have had a couple well, may of- Maybe we should talk about column store first, though. Do you want to tell us what that is? Okay. Column store itself is a new way of storing the data. And I, I say new. Technically, it was introduced in SQL Server 2012 in a limited variety. Got a little bit updated in 2014. Got some really good new features in 2016. It Rather than storing, say, say you have a table that has you know a first name, a last name, a date of birth, a sec social security number, an address. When you have your traditional row store, all of those 
columns get put on this one page of data in SQL Server together. If there are certain methods to make that data storage smaller, for example, we can apply some forms of compression in SQL Server or use some third-party tools. Some data types and some rows of data compress better than others. Um, and when you have a mixture of things like an identity column that's numbers and a date of birth column that's a date and a first name and a last name that are characters, compression to help with size and I.O. and performance can be kind of iffy. Um, the other thing that it requires is really finely tuned indexing strategies to get back exactly the columns you need for every specific query. So what we've come up with now is column store. It takes a table and breaks every individual column into its own storage mechanism. And columns are stored as segments then. So what happens is if you have 5 million rows in a table, even if you have IDs number one through 5 million, they're all the same data type. If we store just that column in its own specific storage format, we can get super great compression. If we take all of the names, the first names, right, all character data, store that one column on its own, even 5 million records compresses much better. So that's how column store works. Each column of data is its own separate storage structure. It's getting much better um, compression than we typically mm -hmm. would. The other, the other flip side of column store is, so there's two pieces to column store. Number one is that data storage. Mm -hmm. The other part is the processing of the data storage and how we're reading that data through execution plans and pushing it. We, for Again, traditional clustered and non-clustered indexes, row store data. We process things row by row by row. We have column store introduced batch mode processing where uh, we can put a couple hundred thousand rows, smush them into an operator together, and we can improve query processing, you know, five to 10 times. So that's kind of the benefits of column store. Mm -hmm. Very cool. Now, uh, now you can get into the indexes. <laughs> now, how do we implement this, right? So the initial way that we did it, you could, in 2012, SQL Server 2012, you had a row store table that had a clustered index on it, and you could create one non-clustered column store index. And what it did is it took all of the columns in your table and made it into this one giant read-only index. Mm -hmm. And it was read-only. So if you wanted to add any more rows to it or if you had any batch updates, you had to rebuild it every day. Not too great. Um, 2014, we added a clustered column store index. So now your table can be either a row store table that has a clustered index applied to it or a column store index that has a column store index applied to it. Again, all of the rows, all of the columns, great compression. Um, what we're doing now with some of the updates with like SQL Server 2016, you can have a clustered column store index that has regular row store non-clustered indexes on top of it. So you can satisfy different workloads and vice versa. You can have a row store clustered index table, your traditional storage mechanism with an updatable non-clustered column store index on it. Um, what that really helps to support is what I like to call the, yes, let's read our reporting data out of our production database problem. Who doesn't want that, right? Who does not want to be able to go, 
I just want to read my transactional data right, right as it comes in. Right? It's easy. Yeah, we don't want to have to wait a day to get our reports. We don't want to be reading yesterday's data. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, when you're building your applications, you're adding more data and you don't want that process to slow down. So the you know a traditional clustered index table where you do all of your inserts, you do your updates, you do your deletes, the writes would go there. And then if you put that non-clustered column store index on top of it, that it, and include the rows, I'm sorry, you include the columns in the table, all of them, that's a non-clustered column store index. As the base table is updated, that gets updated in batches as well. That uh, You might've heard the term operational analytics. That's what that stems from. Um, so I love column store indexes because in 2016, I think they're starting to come full circle in that we can handle these mixed workloads with them. We, again, my background as a database administrator too. We can now do more um, updating of them without having to take everything offline or rebuild everything once a day or once a week. That's good. Um, the big thing that was lacking with column store was limited data type support. It's gotten a lot better. And again, the big thing in 2017 is we're now able to do our Varchar Max uh, and Varchar Max and even Var Binary data types, which a lot of stuff is stored as those types, right? Notes, Mm -hmm. columns. um, And those are typically the data types that make the tables really big, that make things really slow, that make indexing really hard. So again, just another big performance improvement. Okay, very cool. Don't wait for users to report problems. Raygun gives you complete visibility on errors, crashes, and performance problems affecting your end users. Replicate issues in seconds rather than digging through log files or having to rely on users to report errors or crashes. Raygun gives you a window into how users are really experiencing your software applications, supports all major programming languages and platforms, and integrates with your current development workflow tools too. There's a free 14-day trial, and it takes minutes to implement. So start resolving issues in your application and check it out today at raygun.com. And then what about in-memory tables? I know that was codenamed, uh, or was it even codenamed? It was called Hecaton. I think that was actually... Hecaton. Yeah, yeah. So what improvements are there there? All right. So uh, in-memory, right, in-memory comprises, again, both in-memory tables and natively compiled stored procedures that operate on the in-memory tables and make execution against those a lot faster. Mm-hmm. Um, we've had a couple of things that have made it slow, um, or not slow, but just maybe not as fast as it could be. One of the big things that's coming in 2017 is that if anything needs to be redone during like, a say we persist some of that data to disk and we're redoing it, for example, our server restarts and we just need to bring that stuff back up. We've implemented parallelism now. So the uh, transaction log redo or parallel, that's kind of a really low level nerdy thing, but I think it's going to make a big difference. Uh, so is, I mean, the short, the short version then would be, it's fa- I assume it's faster. It's faster then, right? Right? And, <laughs> okay. And, and right. The whole in memory thing, Hecaton was let's make it faster to begin with. So this is just another step up. Uh, I think the big thing, the other two big things, we were limited to, eight indexes on an in-memory table. Um, Not always enough, especially because in SQL Server with a regular table, you're limited to like 999 indexes. 
That's a limit, not a goal. Uh, but eight was not always sufficient. <laughs> I, I hope you haven't seen that hit. <laughs> uh, I have not. I've seen the most indexes I have seen on a single table was about 120. It was right up in that area, which is still plenty, more than so, enough. <laughs> not to get too far on a tangent, yeah. so, but I uh, believe this summer, uh, Nick Craver from Stack Overflow was running a test to see how many schemas SQL Server could support. And he did something like, okay. like 10,000 schemas with several thousand tables in each schema. Okay. So, that sounds like, again, it's typically a limit not a goal but you know nick and the stack overflow team yeah, could definitely I, hit that they they, with they see no them problem. as the same thing <laughs> <laughs> um so we can support more indexes now on in memory tables which is it's a big deal it again one of the main performance tuning mechanisms in SQL Server is indexes. I can talk about indexes all day. Um, we can add column store indexes now on top of in-memory tables. That's a big deal because now we're combining these really fast in-memory tables with a super compressed indexing mechanism that returns data even faster. And we've added the ability to do the case statement in T-SQL against in-memory tables, which doesn't sound like a big thing until you actually need to do it. I didn't know you couldn't do it. <laughs> <You can't. laughs> okay. So for the, for the few listeners that are out there going, oh, they finally solved that problem, we finally solved that problem. Yeah. Yeah. So those are some of the improvements that we've got within memory now in 2017 as well. Yeah, so I, okay. I know I've worked with uh, Power BI uh, a bunch in the past, but it really seems to work best with- Who with, hasn't? With, like the, like your, like- data that's natively freely available. And when you think SQL Server, you're like, hey, it's kind of locked away over in that box over there. So what kind, what kind of improvements <laughs> are there to get Power BI, the really awesome reporting tool, working with all this really cool goodness in SQL Server 2017? Yeah. So, you know, Power BI interfaces with a lot of different data sources. We can do SQL Server. Um, we can do Azure SQL Database. We can use data warehouses that are built in multiple different flavors. Uh, the biggest, coolest thing about Power BI in SQL Server 2017 has to do with sharing the data that you create. Currently, the landscape is people go ahead and they download Power BI Desktop, right? That's the free tool anyone can download, connect to any data source that they have proper authorized access to, create these amazing visualizations, and then they have them for themselves. And we want to share them, right? Because what good is a solid report, a data visualization, if you can't share it with other people? Mm -hmm. How we've been doing this up till now is having to publish it to the Power BI service, right? So powerbi.com, which runs in Azure. I love Azure. We introduced that. But for every organization and for all data, Power BI service, Azure isn't necessarily the right answer. Might not meet some you know, company requirements, regulations, that sort of thing. So we've had this gap where we can create these beautiful visualizations in desktop, but we have to have the Power BI service running in Azure to uh, share them. So SQL Server 2017 is going to allow us to install a component called Power BI Report Server. Once we have this running on-premises, you can 
create a report on Power BI Desktop, publish it to your on-prem Power BI report server, and then consume it from there. Similar to, and this looks and feels a lot like the reporting services portal that you're probably very familiar with. Um, and it can be combined with reporting services reports. Uh, so there is a mechanism in place now to be able to share those for reports or, or for Power BI reports, visualizations, dashboards that previously couldn't go directly into Azure. I think that's a pretty big step. I think that's pretty cool. Yeah. I, so I was working with partners that this this was an absolute requirement. Um and they were looking at a lot of different technologies. They're looking like, do I convert to report server? Do I, you know, like the, the, or sorry, I should say like SSRS, uh, reporting services. Um, or do I look at something like data Zen, which was mm-hmm. a, another Microsoft acquisition. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so that's, that's great. Um, and the partners I've been working with, they're, they're just super happy that you can view reports in, uh, <laughs> in SQL server now offline. Yeah. So that's great. Yeah. And, uh, the reporting services portal experience, you know, HTML5 now redone in 2016, yeah. um, being able to put things like KPIs into the that portal directly, pretty big deal. It looks really pretty. It looks really good. Yeah. So I heard that uh, SQL Server is obsolete now because Cosmos DB is out. Um, so apparently you're just wasting all your time. Um. Correct. You know, once, once everyone gets those SQL Server 2005 and 2008 databases uh, upgraded to 2014 or 2016 or even 2017, yes. <laughs> no, so I, that, no, I, no, I mean, you've heard I, I joke. DB, it's all over yeah. Twitter. It's uh, yeah. probably going to be featured pretty significantly at, say, Microsoft Ignite next week. Mm-hmm. Um, Hasmos DB is really cool. It's this, what do we hear it called? This global, globally available, multi-scalable. Yeah. Faster than light. Faster than the speed of light database. <laughs> it all stemmed from document db in azure which is you know a non-relational data store uh and that's one of the four types of databases that can be or data stores that can be recreated within cosmos db um the big thing is that you have right so it's four choices and i had Mm -hmm. to double check my notes to think of the names of them because (laughs) it's friday and my brain's full so we have different choices we can do that document db style which is just a key value pair um we can do a graph database which is where we have edges and nodes um Mm -hmm. a graph database you mentioned stack overflow earlier and that's the kind of situation where i think a relational database is great to store that data very uh, linear. But what about things where they're kind of circular and some things are related to other things in more than one way? Uh, That's a graph database also supported in Cosmos DB. Hierarchical data, column family data. uh, Again, highly supported in Cosmos DB, not easily implemented or queried in standard relational SQL server. And we can also just flat out store documents in Cosmos Mm -hmm. DB. Um, The big benefit is that Cosmos DB is available in every Azure region. And it's Mm -hmm. easy to go, I'd like it in one, I would like it in five, or I would like it in all of them. So that enables people that are writing applications that scale the world, writing websites that scale the world to be able to have 
their users connect to it, you know, a source of the data that's closest to them, reducing latency, making querying much faster. Yeah, well, I mean, if you already have an existing SQL database, I mean, SQL keeps getting better and better. Like, I, I don't, I think I'd be really hard pressed to tell somebody like, oh, SQL, that's the old thing. You need to, you know, and it's, <laughs> you need it's to not, throw that thing away. It's not the same problem that's being solved. Exactly. Cosmos yeah. DB is not a highly relational database server. It doesn't right. have the, you know, its properties of the document databases and the graph databases do not fit the same model that your relational databases do. Cosmos solves other problems, but it's different problems. Exactly. I mean, yeah. they're just they're just they're just different, and I think the confusion only the only confusion only comes in when it, the fact that if you're creating a new application, there might be some overlapping use cases where it's like, well, you you couldn't go wrong with either one, right? Uh, but but it's not it's definitely not a it's know, not something I, I, where we're taking existing SQL Server databases, ERP systems, etc., and just going okay, back it up, right. restore it into Cosmos, run without a problem. Cosmos is designed to solve a different set. Of of non-relational um, data storage problems. And it does it very effectively. It's getting really good reviews. You can go out and search the internet, search Twitter for Cosmos DB uses and Cosmos DB uh, case studies, and you'll find a whole bunch of different choices. Most of them are not your standard relational database models. Exactly, exactly. Okay, any other questions, Carl? I think we got Okay, them. anything else you want to mention, Jess? No, just SQL Server 2017 is coming soon. Um, the the other thing that is of note is SQL Database. You know, continues to get more features in Azure. That'll be that'll be in the same compatibility mode as SQL Server 2017 pretty soon. So stay tuned to the the Microsoft uh, news to find out when SQL 2017 drops. Okay, that sounds good. Actually, this is just a, a fun, totally different fact and isn't surprising for the area, but one of the guys that works on the Linux code for SQL Server is three houses down from me. Okay. He just moved in, so. Okay. <laughs> I was him, just going to go, I'm like, what do you work on? Tell him he we goes, talked about his stuff today. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He's like, oh, I work on, uh, you know, SQL Server on Linux. I was like, oh, that's pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah, I live I live a little bit away from campus. Like, if you were in Redmond, it's, you know, you don't ask people uh, where they work. You say, what what department do you work in? <laughs> and, uh, you know, so you, you end up with all these interesting neighbors. But I have, I have one. I have one Microsoft neighbor. Perfect. Okay, Carl, uh, we each have a pick of the week. Why don't you do yours first, and then I'll do the really good one. Uh, I think mine's better, but we've already <laughs> had this one. But mine, mine was made better, so I thought I'd bring it out again. Oh, yours is so the. It's th- the. It, uh, never mind. I'm not going to say it. Yeah. Yeah. So, anyways, one of, one of my favorite Azure features is the Azure calculator, yep. the pricing calculator. And a few weeks ago, it got updated, and it's got a bunch of cool features. So, if you're like trying to <clears throat> price out like an architecture uh, just to see, you know, ballpark what it would be. There used to be a bunch of like really annoying things about the calculator. You know, like once you had like 10 things in there, if you click something new, you had to like scroll up and down. Now you uh, there's uh, a little bit of affordance in the UI where you can click it and jump right down to the new pieces. Um, if you need uh, like uh, several things repeated over and over, you can configure it once and then there's a clone button. Mm-hmm. And in addition, there's also like once you uh, uh, bring 
or click on something to kind of tweak the number. links to figure out like, you know, what are the pricing details or uh, what are the product details? You know, like, is this the right one exactly? You know, it gives you the links to jump right to that. So it just makes uh, this a lot easier to use um, and uh, definitely much, much better than uh, the other cloud pricing calculators out there. Yeah, I, I looked at it. It is pretty awesome. So definitely check it out. You actually laughed <clears> at me when I put this in there. So, <laughs> well, then I went out and used it. I'm like, okay, this is pretty. <laughs> this is pretty awesome. <laughs> so it's worth it. Uh, and then the next Azure pick of the week is availability zone. So, Carl, I know we have a guy on our team who is uh, he is just like going nuts, and he's just like availability zones. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and uh, I'm sure he'll have a bunch of blog posts about it. But anyway, so availability zones are it, honestly, it's been the kind of a, a feature that we've been lacking for a long time. Um, so this blog post, it talks about, you know, Azure has 42 regions now, which is just unbelievable how fast um, it's just like, I think they just like chopper them in and like drop them down uh, these massive buildings, like the, the rate that they're building these is so fast. But what they're doing now, um, you know, a region is always comprised of multiple data centers, but the concept behind availability so zones is to have essentially independent everything and have them um, far enough apart that if you have uh, you know, a data center failure, you know, I don't know, a fire or whatever. I don't know how you'd have a fire take out a whole data center, but I don't know, a bo somebody bombs it or something. Um, basically the other, um, half is part of that same availability zone and can, or actually is, I guess it would be a different availability zone. So it's a different set of availability so that you can run your services there. Um, but you'll still have a fast connection between the two. So in the same region, you basically are subdividing that into two groups um, that have uh, redundant hardware capabilities. So it just allows you to build a more uh, resilient application on top of Azure, which is great. Uh, and you have a dev tip of the week that's not appropriate, apparently. Yeah. So, yeah, it's a dev tip of the week, but I only uh, suggest doing this if you hate people. <laughs> so uh, you can go to jsfuck.com and... Uh, in JavaScript, you can recreate everything from the open and close parens, the plus sign, the open and close square brackets, and the exclamation point. Uh, what you can do is you can take any valid JavaScript and put it in the box and encode it, and it will like turn it into whatever this huge amount of those Whoa. six characters are. And by default, they show you like doing a simple alert and encoding that. Um, and you can actually get that and put it in, in your JavaScript, and it will execute and function just like the original code you put in. So if you really hate somebody, alert, <laughs> open paren one, close paren, turns into 1,227 characters of just obfuscated mess that nobody will ever want to read and have fun debugging that. Yeah, so I just put alert, Jess rocks. And uh, yeah, it's 21,020 characters. Um, that's... That's pretty wild. Like, I, th so I think I need to check this into a project to see if somebody notices. Yeah. So if you want to make sure nobody can reverse engineer your stuff, I'm sure there's a way to automate this. But man. Well, yeah. Is there a fun. decoder for this, too? I wonder, like, how easy is it to go back the other direction? Uh, you would probably need a pretty good state machine. Like, is this decent for, like, encoding keys? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know like, if I'd use it for that, but. <laughs> oh, man, that's just a horrible idea. But, I, you know, I don't know. I think in particular, you can also encode parts of JavaScript. So you could, like, have all, like, your uh, your code, right? But you could yeah. just encode, like, your function declarations. Okay. Okay, well, anyway, Jess, I need you to pick a number between one and four inclusive. 
Three. I just threw out my cards. Uh, three. Uh, yeah. Would you rather, (laughs) would you all, would you rather always have to wear diapers for the rest of your life or always have to drink and eat out of a baby bottle? So she's like, I'm, I'm gone. It doesn't say it, it doesn't mean, say what has to be in the bottle. Right. That was my question. Like, am I always yeah. drinking liquid? Uh, I, you know, this is a tough one. You, you can get wine in a baby bottle. Just you so. can. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go with drinking and eating out of a baby bottle. I'm like, could I fit a steak in a baby bottle cut up appropriately? Yes, <laughs> I could. Ice cream fits in a baby bottle. Whiskey and wine fit in a baby bottle. That's my choice. okay and carl why don't you pick a number i'll take number four number four (laughs) we go through fours apparently holy cow okay hold on seriously okay here we go would you rather run a mile on a six inch layer of potatoes or swim across a lake of maple syrup that is 12 feet deep didn't we have a maple syrup question before i think we've had had one before i don't know if it had the potatoes though no so um I want to say that the maple syrup one was on Mythbusters. No, we had it as a question or as an answer, well, I should say. I think we had it as a question, but I think it was also on Mythbusters. Oh, okay. Sure. Are they are they uh, raw potatoes or are they mashed like baked potatoes? Are oh, they no, be they got to be raw. Right? Like these are uh, questions got, that I have. I think the point is that they're raw. Oh. <laughs> yeah, cuz if they're raw, you could twist an ankle, but Cuz you could always could say, see, "Well, they're fresh out of the oven or something." That's <laughs> see, this is a t- that, that's a tough one because that's a lot of injury, but at the same time it says 12 feet deep of maple syrup. That's some pretty hardcore swimming and I would can drown you swim if I got tired. Or not? You can swim through it. And are you more or less buoyant? I don't know that one, but That's what uh, I need to know. But it's a lot more uh, friction. Let's see. But I would be tasty when I was done. So. I'm just thinking about the cleanup required. I mean, that's terrible. <laughs> <laughs> I'm thinking like I don't even know if I would swim across like a kiddie pool in my backyard filled with maple syrup. But well, then it doesn't again, say how fast again, you have to run. I like to run, so maybe I'm just like I'll pick the running over swimming any day. <laughs> Taking in consideration that I'd probably get injured, I would choose the potatoes i don't see any answers here maple there's a pool <laughs> maple syrup this spa lets you swim in a pool of maple syrup but it looks like it's like hot tub sized hmm. so i don't know inconclusive <laughs> so maybe somebody can email us let us know like is it is it uh are you more or less buoyant in it uh but i think you'd i think you'd wear out or tire out pretty quickly okay uh so where can uh, where can people find you, Jess? Most of the time, you can find me on Twitter. I am on Twitter okay. constantly. My handle is <laughs> girlgeek. That's G-R-R-L underscore G-E-E-K. Uh, I also do blog less frequently now at lessthan.com. If okay. you happen to be at the dev intersection sequel intersection conference at the first week of november i will be there presenting uh, so mm-hmm. maybe able to uh talk to you there as well okay very cool and where can people find you carl you can find me on twitter at carl schweitzer and you can find me at on Twitter at twitter.com slash why techie. So Jess, thank you so much for coming on here and giving us the latest update in SQL Server. Of course. Thanks for having me. It was good to talk to you again. 